there are more people in the pit than on the hill. And in democracy, whatever there's more of wins. If you are not raised in a family that is financially competent, that's not just a natural talent. I can vote for anything, actually. You cannot legislate there to be more oil. Philosophers. Philosophers. So, David, what have you named our topic for today? I have named our topic for today late-stage democracy, <laughs> which is not usually the term that goes at the end of that. No, it's not. I feel like late-stage capitalism is the one you hear a lot. Yes. But what do people mean? What... Let's talk oh wow something we've not said in a long time let's talk about what we're talking about yes yeah, so we use the return s- of our catchphrase wow it's from the the good old days long time listeners will know <laughs> veterans <laughs> veterans of the show will know yeah um so what do people mean when they say like late stage do you think uh well the word late uh implies that we are nearing the end of something or at least that there is, at the very least, it implies that there is a lot of history, but late stage, well, late late stage is used as a medical term for a lot of things, mm. um, diseases with discernible progression. So like late stage of a particular type of cancer is when you're getting close to Stage death. four democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely one of the connotations wanting to be drawn there. And well, the, the yeah, there there are two there are two implications. One is that we are nearing the end of the thing. Um, well, if we're talking about the system that we're in, anyway, right? Um, we're nearing the end of the thing, but also that the thing is a bad thing. Well, yeah, yeah, that we're nearing the end. Of, okay, th- three three implications. Okay, we're nearing the end of the thing. Um, the thing is a disease, and it happens in this pattern every time. Yeah. That's the implication because diseases with progression like this go like this unless they're cured, right? Right. Um, then they go like this every time. Yeah, and I think that it's often I think it's worth saying that most of the people that use the that even use the term or t- phrase late stage capitalism, usually commies, um, yes, or non capitalist. Uh, yeah, it, I've never heard someone who likes capitalism use that term. No, and I feel like when they when someone who's obviously doesn't like capitalism uses that term it's partially wishful thinking to hope that it's nearing its end right like good riddance right but also to put it down negatively so i guess we're kind of doing the same thing here sort of yes we're actually trying to yeah we're doing the same thing with democracy but, but, but we're not necessarily going to talk about our democracy in particular we may talk about a few things in our democracy in particular but the 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 thing like yeah how how do democracies fail in darkness <laughs> sorry no inglorious applause that's inglorious, that's, that's yes. the thunderous applause thunderous applause yeah um that's how democracy dies exactly um, yes and to be fair i think that you know we're trying to look at this from how it could possibly or how it has and how it will or why it does as Whereas I feel like most of the people that use the term late stage capitalism, they usually refer to a bad thing that is happening and is like, well, that's late stage capitalism. Like they point to things as like, these are examples or symptoms of late stage capitalism. And it's usually something like a corporate abuse, right? You know, like a a strike gets busted, a union gets busted. 
late stage capitalism. Like this is what you get when capitalism runs wild. And I'm assuming I, I've actually never talked to someone who uses that term and say like, but what do you imagine like actually happens? And, you know, I, I feel like there's several different possible answers. One is that, you know, just getting closer and closer to that last straw where the people rise up. Like that's mm-hmm. one of the answers, but I feel like if they were actually charitable, they would probably point to other examples of countries that are not very capitalist anymore that were at one point. And they mean like, this is the, the coming advent of social programs to turn a state into a socialist state. That's what I would think. You're smiling. Did you look something up? I went to r slash late stage capitalism. Oh, okay. What does it say there? (laughs) Well, I'm not reading about what it says. I just wanted to see what the top post was for today to see, to get an idea of, okay, what, what, uh, what what are people pointing at today to say that this is late stage capitalism? And uh, let's see, this is actually the second top post. Um, and I'm not going to uh, to narrate a meme, but essentially the the gist of the thing is it is late stage capitalism that the that the city government will spend a billion dollars to build a stadium, but won't spend 150 dollars for public transit system. Or 150 million? Did I say million? I don't know if I did. No, but it's implied because it's yeah public spending so yes if you don't preface it's millions at least anyway um yeah so because the city invests in a stadium instead of buses and trains um that's that's capitalism's fault right um although i would argue that that easily falls under late stage democracy as well in our model of what we may discuss today because that that almost to a t means bread and circuses to me let's see right bread and services over public works Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now looking at the top post and trying to make sense of it. Uh, okay. I don't see how this is late stage capitalism. I definitely, I know why this is here, but I don't see it. Okay. It's just a screenshot of a headline. Also people who take screenshots of headlines. Boo. Um, working from home could wipe $800 billion from office values globally. Good. Yeah. Who cares? That's actually capitalism doing a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> that is, yeah. My property values. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Also, yeah. It's supposed to be a self-own or what? <laughs> like Landlords lose lots of money. Late stage capitalism. Like, aren't these the same people who hate Land- landlords <laughs> and rent? This is a very confusing subreddit. This is a very, okay. We're, we're done with the subreddit because that's this isn't even the topic of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I think briefly we should at least acknowledge like we we've talked about democracies a lot um, a few times and I feel like one of the things we always talk about is like I think even in a couple of episodes we talked about um how we've seen other democracies or I mean if we're using the United States as an analog republics because there's only been a handful of those there's actually been way fewer republics than there have been true democracies yeah um based but like uh because republics are actually based in my opinion um but I mean I feel like the the answer we came up to is like what happens when they fall apart like where do they go it's almost always like right back to dictatorship Mm -hmm. in some way shape or form right Yes. Um, and I don't. I don't guess that's what we're really trying to talk about. Um, yeah. But I, I think yeah, it's mostly about how how democracy can defeat itself. 
Yeah. And yeah, not not so much the the outcome, but like how it occurs. I just, for the sake of argument, Googled late stage democracy to see if anything pops up. There's actually a couple of papers about this, which is interesting. Huh. Yeah. So let me quickly read the top of this thesis, which again, I'm not saying this is a good thesis. I have not read this. It's an essay that someone, it's on some website. But essentially, the thesis is America is a democracy, semicolon, so wrong already. Some people may hold an opposite opinion, but the facts hold true that we live in a democratic society. Okay, conflation, but still. We are a nation ruled by the people, and as a nation, we strive for equality. There is democracy, and then there is late-stage democracy. As a society, we want to avoid late-stage democracy because, according to Andrew Sullivan's article, democracies end when they are too democratic. Late-stage <laughs> democracy turns into a tyranny. Late-stage democracy occurs after time. The longer a society is democratic, the more democratic it becomes. That was the citation to that. With that being said, late-stage democracy is inevitable. The question is merely, when will it happen? So maybe by exploring why it goes that way, we can maybe try to prevent that from happening, mm -hmm. I think, is what we want to talk about today. Um, so I feel like it's easy when we discuss politics and governments, it's easy to, it's, it's hard to correlate, I think, individual human experiences to the scale of governments, right? I think it's very... I think a lot of people will give individual anecdotes and analogs and say, this is why government is this way. And running the risk of doing that here, I do think that there are such a thing as microcosms of this um, that we can speak about. But I, I will acknowledge that like a lot of what we're doing here, and if you if you, this is your first episode for some reason, um, we are 100% armchair philosophers. I'm not, I don't think we're going to be pulling in data and charts for this, but nope. So that's perfectly within the realm of capable for us to do. Um, but I think when it comes to telling the story of like why democracy gets more democratic and why it may fall, I think there actually is a pretty good analog Um to like individual experiences you know so i think my take on it and we discussed this a little bit before but i'll reiterate it for the show is that i think it's undeniable um i, I think it's it's a very apropos view of reality to say that you know you could kind of draw a line and separate general populations into two groups of people um, it's a gradient, but it's a, it's not a very like even gradient, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are those people who are born into a situation in which their parents were in a good situation. And when I say that, I mean, mainly like socioeconomically, and this can mean different things to different people. I think the, the modern take is like, I forget what it is that a lot of the based red pill people say these days, but it's, I think it's like two present parents that are undivorced that had children after they were married, who at least one of them worked and one of them stayed home. Like they, there's like a set of criteria where they say, if you can meet these criteria or if we can meet these criteria, it is almost a certainty that the percentages of things like crime or whatever, they drop off dramatically for this subsection of kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not willing to challenge that and uphold that because that's not my point here today. I'm not talking about statistics of crime and all that. But what I am saying is I do think that there is a general understanding that if your parents were born into the middle class or achieved 
middle class before you were born. And you were born in that situation. You got a decent enough education, even if it was just a high school education. You finished high school. And neither one of your parents abused a substance. Neither one of your parents, uh, you know, ran off and left. Or maybe they did. I don't know. But in a nutshell, like if you were given a lot of guidance early on in your life and you kind of had a lot of examples in your life of like how it was to just be okay, you're kind of born on a hill in my analogy uh, you're born on one side of the hill and you're good it's it's a lot easier to stay on the hill than it is to climb up the hill mm-hmm. right um but if you're not born in that situation it is extremely difficult to climb out of the hill for a myriad of reasons and i distinctly remember being in college and i don't want to dox myself but i'm going to go a little bit into like my personal history with college university um I was failing out of college at one point and I had to go to a special program for the flunkies, right? Like essentially I was put on academic probation. And one of the terms of my academic probation was that I had to attend some special program for those who were on academic probation. So I was put in a room with a bunch of other people like me who were all struggling with school. And there was a person who was like counseling us through it. And the goal of this program obviously is to try to salvage people back into the educational system so that they could keep going to school. Um, but I feel like that was a really interesting experience because of all the people in that room, there was only really a handful of reasons why people weren't doing well. Um, and you could definitely tell who was in that room because of a negative situation and who was there because of a positive situation as weird as it sounds, but there was a handful of people in that room, like who were talking about how they had side hustles or they had jobs or they owned businesses that were doing extremely well. And because they just neglect their schoolwork. Exactly. It's like these things are actually directly benefiting my life immediately. And it's hard for me to focus on my education because of these things. Right. Mm -hmm. But then the other half of the room, it was either, you know, I have a problem like, and they wouldn't necessarily admit to it, but like, I like to party. I like to do drugs. drugs, Or more commonly, you know, my mom is sick. They live three hours away or whatever. And I have to go down there all the time to take care of them. And it's things like that, too. Like, it doesn't just have to be... When I say born to a bad situation, you may have avoided the, like, drugs, alcohol, like, all the problems that we see that lead to poverty. But you may be surrounded by people who are clamoring onto you because you're doing slightly better than them. And they hold you back in that way. And I do remember the guy who led the program who also came from a situation like that. And and his advice to those people was, like, at some point, you, you need to cut you need to climb out first, like kick people off of you and climb out. And then if once you're on stable footing, like once you climb up the hill a little yeah, bit, lift people up once you have a place to stand on. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the extrapolation of that is that if you're in the tough situation, I, I think that it takes two to three generations to actually fully climb out of the pit to get onto the plateau. Um, and it, and by plateau, I don't mean like top 1%, top point, whatever percent. It's just, you're not necessarily living paycheck to paycheck. Um, And by that, I mean, you're not, you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. A lot of people choose to live paycheck to paycheck because they go out to eat. They buy things they don't actually need. They buy too many cars. They buy a nicer house when they really don't need a nicer house. You know, they, people will spend what they make. Right. But the reality is, is that if they wanted to, they could easily choose to live within their means and have plenty left over. Mm -hmm. Right. The people who truly live paycheck to paycheck. When I talk about them, I mean like you have a, 
the most the minimum car you need to get you to point A to point B. You you're eating the minimum number of calories you need to eat or like barely enough access to food. Yeah, you know, living paycheck to paycheck is you're waiting on the you're waiting on the deposit to come in so you can go buy groceries or you're calling the utility company and asking them to uh, hold your bill back for a little bit so you can get paid because it didn't land next to payday. Right. That's paycheck to paycheck when you actually don't have money left for the essentials until the next check comes in. Well, and more importantly, it's because you've already spent your whole paycheck on necessities. Like to me, that's how I classify it. And not because you blew it all on drugs or or other stuff for your own amusement. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'd be surprised how many people make like $10,000 a month. Right, or still live paycheck to paycheck, live because quote, paycheck to paycheck, yeah, because they're stupid, yeah, because they're stupid and financially ignorant, which that's also a part of it. If you are not raised in a family that is financially competent, that's not a, that's not just a, a natural talent, really. You you have to learn how to do that, and uh, some people, it's some people. I think a lot of people, and and to be clear, you know, just for preference's sake, like I I was not born in the pit. Right. I, mm-hmm. I'll just be the first to admit that I was not born in that situation. I was born to two parents. They were both born who were together. They were both born to two parents who were together. And then there's like two or three generations back of like, we've been doing all right, you know. And I did meet members of my family who went through the climbing out of the pit struggle, you know, but that was generations ago. And I can look back through my family tree and see like, where were you born and where did you die? Right. Like, mm-hmm. Where did you get to on the on the hill? And it took two or three generations to get out. Um, but like before I really thought about it, if someone would ask me, like, do you have, you know, were you educated about finances? My answer would have been no, because none of my family has ever worked in finances. But the reality is, is I was, you know, I, but it was more inherent to understanding, like I watched my parents budget. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's not finances. But to someone who lived in a household where the word budget was never spoken, that's finances like that's something they don't know about right yeah there's definitely a um a mm, like there's a feedback loop a negative feedback loop Mm -hmm. for people who don't know how to handle money um and you know one of the things that i was um i was looking at recently was basically about people talking about like basically poor habits Mm-hmm. like habits of people who are poor and one of the things that feeds back into that is um actually the discussion was about how do you how do you tell if someone is poor or has been poor um and one of the behaviors there is that as soon as they get some money they are looking for ways to spend it um and this isn't necessarily like we were saying before like the the the, the reckless but privileged people who make lots of money but then go blow it all. It's the mentality that, oh, wow, I have $200 cash in my hand. I may never have this much money again, mm-hmm. so I'm going to go enjoy myself now. Right. Um, whereas, you know, if they actually were responsible with it, they actually might have a chance to, to pull themselves out of the pit. Yeah. Um, but it's the but the mentality of I may never be this well off again, so I'm going to enjoy myself keeps them in the pit forever. Right. Well, and I think there's a gradient of that too, because like I I know members of my family who were in that process, like halfway up the slope, that oh, seeing things as investments that aren't, 
like mm. you've understand the concept of money and budgets, but you, you, you're afraid of debt. Like, I think that's a stage that people go through. Like, cause when you're poor debt is terrible because it is terrible to have debt that you cannot pay. Right. That's a definite negative feedback. Right. Route. That's a chain. Yeah. Yeah. So the first step is like, if you don't know anything about it, don't do it. Right. That's, that's the first attitude, but that, generationally turns into debt is evil and i think that's why you see a lot of people like worshiping at the altar of like dave ramsey who talks about like eliminate all debt possible because Mm -hmm. it's but no actually debt is actually extremely useful if you know how to do it right but you gotta remember like i think his target audience is people who are born into families where debt was a major source of keeping them in the pit yes and i and i even even when i was educated about personal finance basically the first bit of personal finance advice i got was don't get a credit card yeah um but i mean yeah later i kind of why but I, I didn't wise up about that until i had like already finished college yeah right so i graduated college with no credit history basically which is not a great place to be in but it's better than being in debt it is better than being in debt and I, I, debt, I did have yeah. zero debt when i graduated right um which is more than a lot of folks can say more than i can say um so yeah there there was at least uh, yeah I, I was afraid of debt and so did not go into student debt mm-hmm. to to go to school so at least that was good but um but yeah it put me in a bad place for other things that i actually could have used debt for right um so yeah i think there's there's a gradient to it as far as like you, you kind of have to learn these things on your way up right and it's weird too because even as you're climbing out, it's still pulling you back because the lessons that were needed to learn to get from point zero in the pit, like if we're measuring the scale of in the pit is zero to on the on the hill is ten, to move from zero to like three or four in your lifetime, the lessons required to go from zero to four, three or three and a half to four, are not the same as the lessons that things that you need to learn and know to go from three or four to six or seven, right? Mm-hmm. And so. And this is a thing that usually happens is parents pass on the knowledge to what they what they had to learn and what they understood to their children. And, it, and it's not always like your biological parents either. A lot of the times it can also be like just people, you know, growing up, um, parents and family members tend to be around you more. And so you, you're going to learn everything a lot faster than they did on how to get to where they are. But the problem is, is you're wanting to move beyond them. So now you roll the dice again to figure out if you can figure it out to get to five or six. And then you have to roll the dice again to get to nine or 10. And the problem is, is that sometimes the strategy required to go from like four to seven, if implemented poorly, can take you back to zero. Mm -hmm. Right. So it takes multiple generations of rolling the dice and getting it right. And sometimes you might crit, you know, critical roll or max roll, (laughs) and then you can skip a, you skip a rung, but like they're really rare. But all it takes is for you to roll poorly to just backslide and you can always critical fail and jump straight to the bottom, right? So the system that, th- and when I say the system, I don't mean like the, the constructed system by our government, the, the, the elites the or whatever, the cabal, the, the, the infamous elite cabal, them, them, the thems. Yeah. This is true even in like a state of nature type deal. Right. It, it, it I, this works, I think anywhere. This is just a descript anywhere this, that there is progression. Right. Yes. It is progression all, and a floor. Right. <laughs> it is so much easier to fall down to the floor than it is to achieve the next level in the progression. And so, but what it does is it creates a biasing system where the majority of people will end up in the pit. And if you're starting in the pit, it's easier to stay in the pit than it is to climb out. 
but if you're starting on top, it's just, it's easy to stay there, but you can't go any higher really, but it's also almost as easy to fall down into the pit. And usually these falls don't, yeah, anyone at the top can fall down, but the, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to draw an analogy for that because yeah, there are also kind of some strings holding you near the top as well. You have to fail harder to come down from the top. Yeah, but I feel like the systems by which you fail can easily, like the feedback loops for failure are stronger than the feedback loops for progress. Yes. Like, good example, and you see this happen all the time. Like, there's there's the, um, what do they call them? Trust fund kids, right? Yep. These are the people that are the most primed to not fail, right? Because the person before them, assumedly, who got to the top built their own safety net for this person where it's like, they actually can't screw it up. Well, it'd be very, I, I'm increasing the difficulty of screw up. I'm hedging against screw ups, right? But you can still screw up and just, but you'll hit the safety net instead of fall all the way through. But that's for you. It's a lot harder to keep that, but your bad habits persist even though the safety net's keeping you there, the, the the feedback loop is still growing and growing and growing. And then you're going to pass that feedback loop on along with the safety net to your children. But at some point, the safety net will eventually run out, you know. And you see this happen with like super wealthy people who do build these trust funds for their kids. Their kids blow it all, but they're able to drop. Instead of dropping all the way in, they drop down to middle class. And as long as their kids don't, their kids screw up again, then you drop down. So you're talking about two generations, but that's only after you've achieved achieved max level. And it, the number of people who can realistically achieve that level are very thin anyway. Mm -hmm. So how does this correlate to democracies in late stage, right? Um, well, I think there are more people in the pit than on the hill. Yeah. And so they get to decide and, how and things in go. democracy whatever there's more of wins. Right. Now I, I know that influence is still a thing and that's sure. That's a fair thing. Influence does hedge against this, which is a weird thing to say because most people look at people in positions of power or entitlement, pulling strings and manipulating a otherwise what would be this ESO, like this ethereal uncorrupted democracy. Well, spoiler alert. I think that the uncorrupted democracy would just decline even faster. Because while I do think that corruption and abuses also lead to issues, they still favor the democracy remaining. Mm -hmm. Because, well, they're upheld by the status quo, so they want to maintain it. Right. Um, and they can create new artificial barriers, but they can't get rid of the ladder, I think is the point I'm trying to make. Is they can't throw the ladder out because they're also on it. And if they throw the ladder out, then it's a free game, right? They want the ladder to still be there, but they want to make it as hard as possible for them to fall down. And sometimes that does mean that it makes it harder for people to climb up. But it also can make it easier to stay up when you are up, you know, even if it's at the expense of people falling down. Yes. Um, but that never changes the fact that the, the populace, the, the majority of the populace is still in the pit. Um... And I think there's an interesting analog here about around the word enfranchisement, which, you know, this is the other thing that we talked about that kind of led to us wanting to discuss this episode. But I think there's an interesting analog here to look at when it comes to like, you know, enfranchisement in terms of like how feminism looked at the enfranchisement, which is, you know, originally stage one or first wave feminism's primary objective was the vote. Like 
we right want. the suffragettes the suffragettes and by enfranchisement what they really meant was the right to vote but and i don't know i don't know if you have the official term for enfranchisement pulled up but what we had kind of discussed is that enfranchisement really does mean the right to vote but or to be treated as an equal first class or there, there's no classification of citizens. You either are, you aren't. And if you are, you have all the rights of a citizen, right? Um, so even if it does just mean the right to vote, I'm going to go ahead and uh, co-opt that. I have the definition. Okay. What does it actually mean? All right. According to the American heritage dictionary to enfranchise uh, means to endow with the rights of citizenship, especially the right to vote. Okay. So it does include all of the rights of a citizenship. Yep. Okay, good. So they were correct in using that term because there was a right to some citizens, but not to all. So when the right of citizenship was attained, or when the right to vote was attained, at that point, you could make the argument, at least on paper, that everything was equal as far as treatment under the law. If the right existed, it applied to everybody. Um, of course, there was also in the United States the 13th Amendment that added African Americans to that and essentially abolished slavery and removed that category of non-citizens um i think in the modern day some people might say that you know uh uh illegal aliens or you know, non-citizens that are from other countries you know they're second class citizens because they're not fully enfranchised and they're technically right but that kind of is they're also not really second class citizens though because they're, they're not, not citizens. citizens at all yeah. yeah so it's a little bit different but i guess the point i'm trying to get it is that if you are a citizen of almost any country these days it's a democracy you're you're equally enfranchised but what but now but feminism still exists right because that the goalpost moved and i'm not saying it shouldn't have i'm just saying that it did and that's okay just let's acknowledge it please you know and it didn't have to be that you know but it could be other things so i think an example is the debate going on and that has been going on in the united states around healthcare. So when people say that I'm not enfranchised to healthcare, they're technically right, but it's not because there is a citizen who does have that right. It's that no one does. So it needs to become a right for you then to be able to be franchised to that right. Right. And so this is the crawl of the populace to who, again, remember, these are people who are in the pit who by the very nature of being in the pit are unfortunate like they don't have fortune they have a lot of issues and problems and things that are keeping them from living a life that we would consider to be the average standard of living or above the average standard of living so everyone wants to move up to the next uh, rung of standard of living and continue to do so but because democracy exists you can just say that you this is what it, everyone deserves and then vote for it and once you get that well, what's to say you can't just keep adding things to the roster of things everyone deserves and then keep voting for those, right? And if you listening to this think that this is a good thing, that we can keep raising the standard for what everyone deserves, then you should keep listening. Right. Because there are, there are final consequences to this. Yeah. And, and to me, I think if you had to draw a line to say, welcome to late stage democracy, it's when you reach the point where people kind of realize or begin to think or the ability to vote for something no longer correlates to its actual ability to occur. Right. I can vote for anything. Yeah. Actually. And technically they're right. You, 
anyone can propose anyone in the legislature can propose any law that they want and people can vote on it yeah it, that's we never can, we can vote for people to be entitled to a flying car yeah even though there are no flying cars wait like a good a good another good example is we could just move to vote that everyone is entitled to forever life right and Even who, though we don't who know how to do wouldn't that. want that? Who would not want who to live wouldn't forever? Want, yeah, I did, sure. Sounds like a great idea. Or we're going to make diseases illegal because diseases are illegal. Who sure. likes having diseases, right? And I know it sounds now, maybe nobody is proposing this today. No, but it's, and no reasonable person would. But right, but for the, but same, the option is there, right? And but and but for the same reason that sounds ludicrous maybe to you, so is things like. Why can't everyone just have a doctor that caters to their needs? That because there are resources involved in providing that. Yeah, because there are limits, right? Yes. And don't get me wrong, I do think there are people that still advocate for this and that are arguing at least in a better realm of trying to prove that it is possible on paper mm -hmm. to do this. And for those of you who I still disagree with, by the way, I do at least appreciate you having thought about it, you know. But there are plenty of people who support you that haven't, that think that, well, obviously, the government can just pay the doctors to do doctoring for everyone, you know? And these and this ends up back to the place where it's like, well, money's not real because the government can make as much as it wants and a dollar's worth a dollar's worth a dollar forever. Yes. Which is true. Technically, in a meaningless way. <laughs> but it sounds right. And it is right. It is right. A dollar is always worth a dollar, but that doesn't mean that it's always worth the same of other things. Exactly. And so that I think is when you've truly entered late stage democracy is when democracies start realizing you can just start voting for things that don't actually make sense on paper practically. And I'm more than happy. I would be very happy if that was the debate being had, but I don't feel like it is. You know, I feel like the debate is now a lot more and more about like how things should be. And if we could just vote for it to be the way it should be, then it would just be that way. It's it's very similar to the people who say things like, man, I am tired of murder. We should make murder illegal. Well, spoiler alert, it already is. Right. And and I know that making you something illegal doesn't actually stop it from happening. Except in Germany. Um, at least by the way they behave anyway. <laughs> I'm joking. Germans are very special. They are very special. In many ways. Yeah. And don't be wrong. I do think that, you know, there are societies where that you can actually kind of do that. Like, don't be wrong. It doesn't. But it's held up by the sheer willpower of the force of culture to make that happen. Right. right. But if you had that, you wouldn't need to make a law for it in the first place, even though if you're German, you still do. Right. Yeah. Just to give you a reason to go punish the one person who didn't fall into line. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, the Romans did this, and we, the Pomerium example is always great and hilarious to think about. Yes. All these m thousands of people trying to fit through two stone columns because it's... A, it's Even a, though, yeah, there is no wall that they have to pass through a, a gate of. Yeah. But that's where they get used to be, and if you don't go through the gate, you're assaulting the city. So, yes, it's an act of war. Yeah. And even though that makes zero sense practically... The they sure did care about it. They sure cared a lot about that, and symbolism was huge and important in that culture, so... Um, but not every culture be like that. But yeah, I think to me, that's when you fully crossed into the barrier of late stage democracy is when you just start voting for things. And this is, again, something that happened in Rome, which, again, was a republic, not a democracy, but it had democratic elements. And this is, I think, where your bread and circuses analogy starts to come in, which is 
wait, we can just vote to, it would, I think the modern day equivalent would be like, what if it is like voting for holidays, right? That is a real world equivalent. It's like, Hey, we're all just going to get together and decide that none of us have to work on this day. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing we can do. We, and have done several times. I've done several times, but there's no limit. There's no reason to say it couldn't be every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How long until it is every day. Right. Yeah. Um, why not make it a whole month? You know, why not? Sure. Why not a whole month? Why not a whole season? Um, and then, yeah, work no longer required. Cool. But it is, though. Yeah. But people, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> work is required, though. Yeah. And I think that the other thing to acknowledge here is that when the resources do start to run out, where do you go to find them? You know, and I think th this whole cycle is in and of itself like a negative feedback loop because the more you see this happen, and, and I think maybe if you had to have like a numbers way to prove when you're starting to enter late stage democracy, it's when the number of people, it's not about the percentage of wealth distribution. It's more about how many people are like, is the number of people in the pit growing? And this is despite, and it, you know, and obviously you'd have to account for this in some ways, but like, we pass policies to keep people from being more poor, but they are just more of them now, even though we passed that policy that expressly had the goal. And I think the thing I'm trying to get at is that if you restrict the ability for people to climb out of the pit by trying to artificially raise the pit, well, the pit's attached to the base of the mountain. You're just going to keep shifting things up. So maybe one symptom of it is an uneven distribution, but you essentially are growing the number of people in the pit even though you're passing policies to try to stop that. But once there's more people in the pit, it makes it a lot easier to pass more legislation to try to raise the pit. And now we've entered a feedback loop. And we've entered a feedback loop where uh, all of a sudden you start having people say things like eat the rich and stuff like that, where they acknowledge that the resources need to come from somewhere, but they don't care. And they want those rich people to join them in the pit. And then ultimately, I think you enter a final stage democracy when everyone's in the pit and the voting stops working. Because there's nowhere else there to get the resources. There finally is nowhere else to tax. Yeah. And that's when the Gauls come in, but you call them barbarians and they sack the city, right? Um, and I think that's ultimately the way that democracies fail. Like, it may turn to tyranny at some point along the way, but the real feedback loop underlying all of that, I think, is one that very well mimics a natural phenomena we see occur just in human life and in the human condition, which is that improvement is hard retaining what you it takes effort to retain advancement and even more effort to advance mm -hmm. whereas stagnation leads to backsliding you know you can think of it in the way where it's impossible to stand still you're either moving forward or you're sliding down you know the hill maybe in this analogy is more like a treadmill i was gonna say it's like a treadmill yeah, yeah. And all it takes is a slip or a fall to start backsliding. And once you start backsliding, it's like a treadmill that's not physically possible where the tread speeds up the further down you get. Almost. Where, you know, it's really hard to move forward, but it gets easier to continue moving forward a little bit along the way. But any backsliding means that you will quickly accelerate backwards. You know. Um, and the question is, I think we all want people we don't want people in the pit. I think everyone agrees that being in the pit sucks, right? Yeah, being poor sucks, and I don't want people to be poor. 
Right. But, but how do you not be poor? Like, and how do you get out of the pit? Cause, and, and, and to be fair, I think that this is where the conversation really starts to wind all over the place because so far I've just been using this ethereal word, you know, the pit. But I imagine if you're a particularly religious person, when I say pit, you imagine a different thing. If you're not, you may, rel- if you are in poverty, you may be imagining that, you know, or you may be thinking about like personal life choices and responsibility. It, and in a way, it's all of those things, right? Yes, there are many, the pit takes many forms. Right. And all of them seem to be somewhat related. And that's not to say that wealthy people don't abuse drugs or that, you know, poor people aren't good at finance. Well, that one may be kind of directly correlated. But theoretically, you could be like living paycheck to paycheck, but be really good at managing your paycheck to paycheck. You just never take the next step to utilize that to get out. But, you know, but in a nutshell, there's just tons of ways to stay in the pit. And there's only a handful of ways it seems to climb out. Um, And I think the first thing that, you know, I think this goes back to an episode we talked about. Did we we talk about scams a couple episodes ago? I feel like this is a like this is why scams are so appealing to people because they're offering they look like ropes, right? Yes, ropes to pull yourself out of the pit. Yeah, right. And or ropes that somebody else is offering you to pull you out of the pit, but they're not. Right. And that being said, are there ropes? Like, are there ways to pull yourself out of the pit? You know. And the other half of it is: is it sustainable? Because that's another thing I heard. Like a good example, I've heard a scam before where the scammer essentially says, anybody, everyone can be a billionaire. And it's like, what do you mean by that? Like, do you mean anyone or do you really mean everyone? Because you're technically not wrong, but what you're implying is not true, mm-hmm. which is everybody can live the life that a billionaire lives. Yeah, that's actually not true, though. Right. Um and that's a tough pill to swallow because scarcity exists. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like we talk about this a lot, but I also feel like it just it's consistently missed when I talk to people. Not everybody can have everything, you know. There's a finite number of things. Yep. And, you know, I've never seen it done, but I think it would be very, very interesting to do the math to say, like, if you were to divide up all the world's resources, give them a monetary value, and you were to like lay it out evenly, what actually is the achievable average? Like, imagine you had like cheat codes in the communist utopia video game, mm-hmm. and you could just extract all the resources and actually like count them all up, assign a value to them, and then like put them all in a central reserve and then spread the dollar amount evenly, and then for s- and then not try to figure out how all the things would get spent, you know. I wonder what that would actually look like. You know, you could also think about it in terms of like, if everybody, if we took the total surface area of the planet and divided it evenly amongst all the people living on it. Okay. When I say surface area, like all the livable surface area, cause that's a very different thing. There's a lot of inhospitable places. But if you took all the livable surface area on the planet and you were going to give everyone an equal size plot of land on which to live and spend all of their equal amount of fortune, what would it actually be? So I have a report. Uh, from last year, 2022, about year 2021. Um, so this is the Global Wealth Report. The uh, the wealth, the global wealth uh, at the end of 2021 was for uh, converted to U.S. dollars was uh, 463.6 trillion dollars. Um, and that seems about right. So wealth per adult came out to. 
So that is your if we if we split everything evenly, everyone would get eighty seven, eighty eight thousand dollars. Doesn't seem like a lot, does it? Like it's it's kind of weird. It's to not think. nothing. Like th- that's a lot of money to have in my hands at a time. When I'm assuming that that would be a yearly earn, right? Because that was for that year. And if the total no, amount, oh, that's total that's wealth, wealth always. That is the total amount of assets divided by the number of people. Oh my. Can we look at, I wish we could see a year before that to see like what the total amount of like wealth that was generated was. Because you would have to divide that to get the annual salaries if you were to pay everyone equally. Right? Let's see. Because what would that be? Cause if everyone is always entitled to an equal portion of the wealth generated, it's not the wealth held, it's the wealth generated per year. Don't get me wrong. Also, I assume that if everybody had an equal number of wealth, then things being traded between, you would always have to make fair exchange. Mm-hmm. So you're, I guess it would never go down. But once you've acquired, you will always have 800, what was it, 806,000? No, 88,000. Oh, even worse. So <laughs> you will always, you will only ever always be able to have $88,000 worth of stuff. Which is weird because consumables exist, but I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know where you're getting that from. What What are you talking about? Well, okay. Imagine we take everything away from everybody, uh-huh. all the assets. And distribute it evenly. We... We assume we, and for the sake of this analogy, we remove the cost of doing all this because that's also right. A huge, we get, yeah, we have magic to do this. We yeah, have magic, and instead we say we take all your things away, but 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 in exchange you get eighty eight thousand dollars. Now remember, this is just total asset wealth. Nothing's, and let's also assume for the sake of argument that all of the things that are being generated and consumed are being destroyed, but they're being replaced at a replacement rate, which isn't necessarily guaranteed. But for the sake of the argument, let's just say that, and. Your everyone has sat down and said, "Here is your eighty-eight thousand dollars, plus land on which to live." So we'll take the global, you know, all the available land mass, and you have that amount of land to live on. And here's eighty-eight thousand dollars. So not counting land value, even though I'm sure that makes that up. actually would factor into that. So yeah, so deduct the land value from your. But we'll pretend that we can just do that. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, even if we did that, I still think it's not much. So cool. Everything you ever own from that point, if you build a home. On that land, if you get a car to feed yourself, all fun and expenses, once you buy that thing, again, magic, we're assuming nothing deteriorates, you can only hold $88,000 worth of assets, including cash, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you start with $88,000 cash, and if you buy a $60,000 car, cool, you're left over with $28,000. And let's assume you eat on $1,000 a month. That's another $12,000. Deduct that. You quickly start to see how menial you would have to live. You know, and remember, assuming food's replacement rate. So that just just automatically, it's taken out of your budget. Okay, other context is being missed here, though. Obviously, we're doing magic here and, and brushing details under the rug. But like the reason that this doesn't make any sense is because, okay, yeah, you eat and sustain yourself for a thousand dollars a month but who's doing the work for the other stuff oh no no keep in mind you will still work a job 40 hours a week but you will not be paid okay everyone has to work at the same rate of production to keep everyone at eighty eight thousand dollars worth of assets okay i see what you're you're, okay but the only way i I guess i i I missed the part where you said we were like instituting a system like a 
communist system where yeah. we're doing okay well, that's what i'm saying like we're I, magic wand that, communists. I that part okay okay yeah. magic wand communists i thought we were going through the scenario of everyone starts off equal now what happens um yeah but no, that's different. no i'm saying like we're enforcing that so in okay. order for everyone to stay this way right because at this point the pit arguably no longer exists but we're doing some pretty drastic things to keep it from existing and the the hill is the pit they're the same right and the quality of life that everyone has is an $88,000 a year existence, which, hear me out, the vast majority of people are under that $88,000 a year. But again, well, yeah, but, but you're saying $88,000 a year, and that's not how it is, well, though? You're, yeah, I know it's not how it is. It's asset totals, right? Right. I think I think the realistic thing there is to is to say, okay, you're, it, it, it will be so enforced that you'll have whatever we decide $88,000 worth of things are ever. And then, yeah, like consumables are just like something else. Right. You will never be able to build or buy a house worth more than 88000 or actually sub And if you want a car, you need to sacrifice from your house to be able to do that. Yeah. Right. And if you want a new car, it better be if equal or less. Again, remember, we're magically removing depreciation of value. And I'm assuming that's because we can assume that think wealth is being generated. If by people all are this doing work. work, then yes. But it's being matched at an equal rate of the deterioration of the things we're making. Entropies. Mm -hmm. Imagine you were able to magically make wealth devaluation and wealth generation equal in this case. You know, it's not a grand. The point I guess I'm trying to get at here is that it's not a grand existence, right? Like, obviously, most people would not consider the top of the hill to be $88,000 a year. At least the people who complain about it wouldn't. I'm sure there are plenty of people globally who would love the life guaranteed by $88,000 a year's worth of assets. You know, or you're rolling assets. I need to stop saying per year. I'm just thinking that terms, but you know. But I imagine most of the people who actually complain about this probably are going to benefit from more than that in their lifetime. Because remember, you're not making 88 you don't have $80,000 worth of stuff. You know, you would be at this level after working for two years, making $40,000 a year. Okay. I pulled up the, uh, just to, just to complete the thing. I pulled up the global GDP stats for the same year. Okay. So that there's our production rate. So you begin with 88,000 and you make $12,000 a year, which is if I gave a thousand dollars for food, congratulations, congratulations. You are that actually does. Out. Yeah. Just like cover your consumables for a month. Yeah. Yeah. So when you put it in those terms, Healthcare for everyone doesn't sound like it makes sense. And borderline not possible. Because remember, this is healthcare is not a directly productive outlet. It can enable further productivity, right? Mm -hmm. A doctor existing can take a person who would otherwise not be productive and help return them to being productive, right? But I doubt that's the level of care most people are expecting by a universal healthcare system. And I imagine that most people would be very, very upset if the goal of their centralized healthcare system would be to return you to the workforce as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Because hear me out, people can work missing fingers. Yeah. They did, you know. Mm -hmm. They still do. Still do, right. And so, and, and don't get me wrong, I know that this, this is all very hand-wavy, magical analysis, but like... <sighs> I guess just to take those things off the table, like the ropes that are being suspended, if they don't pass this check, at least they're not real. They're scams, you know, 
And to be fair to these people, I don't necessarily think that the right way to look at this either is to say, cool, it's not going to be fair. All right, then. Well, I'm going to see if I can just outdo you because I can. Because the other thing that's not true about the system is it's not fixed. Mm-hmm. Right? And to be fair again to the commies, they usually don't say that, yeah, we're going to guarantee everyone $88,000 a year in value. They usually pitch it up higher. And the way they justify it is by saying that a centrally planned economy is more efficient than a capitalist one. We will find ways to stretch the productivity of labor to make life even better. And it'll be better than $88,000 a year. Right? Mm -hmm. Never happened, by the way. But, you know, so say we all. It, it, It is possible, you know. Um. So what do you do about that? Because I think if we could have figured out a way to all get out of the pit, we would have done it already, right? Like if someone really did have a magic rope ladder to climb out of the pit that was infallible, people would have used it. I think the um the problem okay, like okay, there are ropes out of the pit, but they're not they won't keep you out of the pit permanently. Um so like I dude hmm. I'm like thinking of the uh analogy of the the treadmill um okay if you haven't learned like okay you're stuck you're stuck at the bottom of the pit you're at you're at the end of the treadmill you've rolled off the end of the treadmill um and someone offers you a rope to pull you further up but you still haven't figured out how to walk fast enough to keep up with the treadmill Mm -hmm. you know so like yeah like literally today someone with a lot of money can just give you a bunch of money and drag you out of the pit but if you don't know how to sustain that lifestyle, you're going to backslide right back in. Yeah. And that's evidenced by looking at the number of people who have, in fact, won the lottery. And then who the number of people who were in poverty won the lottery and then returned to poverty. Mm-hmm. It is insanely high. And the number of people who do that. You know. And I think the... And I guess one thing I want to... Because I can already see this being a complaint about our analogy here is that there's only so much room on the hill and the number of people on the hill causes the hill to sink. I don't think that's the case necessarily. Maybe it depends on what you mean by the hill, I guess in this case, but I think the real way you can look at the system and analyze it is in order to improve it is if it is, if it is true or you make it such that in order to climb out of the pit, you have to make room for yourself on the hill. I think that's one of the only ways you can get out sustainably and set up a system where people can sustainably get out, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, imagine instead of digging a deeper hole for the fewer people in the pit and then growing the, the size of the hill by shoveling the dirt out and making a new hill out of it, it's more like, how do you grab onto these things that already exist but make them into such a way that we can do more? right? Increasing efficiency, increasing the usefulness of otherwise unused, previously unusable things, right? Because that's, you know, I think the world of finance has done a huge disservice to helping people understand like where wealth comes from and is generated. Because if you look at the number of people, especially now that look at the stock market as a way to become wealthy, it, it's not, necessarily it can be but it's not really and it's not that the stock market adds value to the world like to no. the things it it's all speculative in a way 
some parts less speculative than others. Sure. I think like the okay, the purest form of the stock market is stocks that pay dividends, right? So you buy a stock, you now have partial ownership of a company, mm-hmm. and this company pays shares of its profit to its owners. Um, and that gives the stock an inherent value. It, it is a share of the value that the company is producing for its owners. So right. it's not just and the, the, the only speculation is, will the company continue to make money? Right. But let's take another example. Say there is a stock that belongs to a company that has for every year of its entire existence somehow magically been able to produce like 4% yield. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like it's just an incredibly steady business. By the way, these exist. They do exist. But imagine that everyone wants to use that as a way to retain wealth. What happens to that? Mm-hmm. First of all, there's a finite number. Like stocks are not printed like money necessarily. Yeah, there's only a certain number of shares. Well, yeah, so that oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you did you did use a percentage, which makes this yeah, that that's what makes the next part fall apart. Because you could still have a company that pays like the same absolute dollar amount per share, right? For even if everyone decides to do this, but yeah, if you express it in terms of a percentage, then it breaks. Because yeah, everyone decides, okay, uh, I can just get four percent returns on this by buying it. Okay, I'll buy some, and so does the next guy say that, and the next. So now the stock price goes up because the demand has gone up, but the supply is fixed. Yep. Um. So then, well, okay, the supply actually isn't fixed. They can print more shares. That's also a thing. But it breaks in both scenarios. Right. So if the price goes up, then the absolute dollar amount yielded per share stays the same. So the yield percentage goes down. Mm -hmm. Because if it's paying $1 per share, um, and that's 4%, and then the share price doubles, now it's only 2%. Right. Um, the other option is they print more shares, but now they have to pay more dollars to pay the share to everybody. Yep. And unless their business doubles its money or whatever, um, then it's going to fail to pay dividends. Right. So I guess the point I'm trying to get at here is that you cannot just keep throwing money into finances and that generates real wealth. But the way that I think it was originally intended to be used and the way the company could decide to issue more shares to make that money right now is not to turn around and lend that money back out to make more money. It's to use that money to change their business such that more actual value is being generated. And they can do this several ways. You can acquire other businesses that are being profitable and make them more profitable. Because remember, if you're acquiring at the same rate of profitability, it you didn't actually change anything. You just changed the size of the pot, but the percentages are the same. Mm-hmm. You could reinvest and hit the you know and see if you can push the limits of your own efficiency to where your costs do not change, but the amount of you know it's easy to put this in terms of sellable products or services, mm-hmm. but those go up, but your costs remain the same. You know, there are ways you can do it. But at the at the end of the day, that I think is the true measure of whether or not something has brought more actual that that's the real way to create more value in a sense. Is to work harder, basically. To to achieve more. Not yeah, not to work, achieve more. I think yeah, that's the better yeah, way to put well, it. Yeah, not not literally work harder, but yeah, to 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 actually achieve more. Yes. Um Yes. And there yeah, that that, that is the fundamental limit of how of how productive a company or indeed an economy can be. Right. Is how much can people achieve within it? 
Right. And and I think this pans out because if you look back over time, it's not like the it's not like when because, you know, there was a point in time when there was like, what was the minimum population of humans on the Earth at one point? Like after we kind of became civilized, I, wasn't there a dip in our population at one point, like after the bubonic plague where there was just like a really low number of people on the Earth? several million or something like that like it was really low I don't, I, this could be yeah. a false fact but point i'm trying to get at is at one point in time the population the civilized war of a post like nations are here we you may know their names right like rome egypt existed these places mm -hmm. existed all the resources that existed then that exist now did exist then too actually more because we've consumed a lot of them right mm. they may not have been useful they may not have been considered resources but like gold iron oil those all existed then Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But then why when there was so few more so few people, did they not all on average live a better life? Because they didn't know how. They didn't know how. And those things were not you so what? If you sat in a litter box in the middle of the Middle East on a mountain of on a, a virtual sea of oil, no one needed it. It didn't matter. Right. The internal combustion engine hasn't been right. invented. Refined fuels haven't been invented. Yeah. So this oil is useless. It's just gross black liquid right and that's that's natural resources renewable or otherwise but i think that's how you scale up the value because when you really think about it your house is not made from money it's made out of real material things we we want material things we don't want money right. so money much. itself is not really worth anything yeah like imagine i said i could give you a billion dollars but you can't spend it like no one would care it's like right, cool. Well, cool. And you can't borrow against it. You can't actually use it in any way. But you you're a billionaire. Like who no who cares? That, that, no, I'm not though. Yeah. yeah. No one actually cares. Like, no, I want to be able to buy what a billionaire could buy. You want the yeah, actual people things. like for the number to go up, but there's a reason I want the number to go up. It's because I can use the number to do stuff. Um, right. But if you just give me a big number but I can't do anything with it, then it's meaningless. Right. And the whole reason people complain about inflation is because you're making the number go up, but the things that number represents are not changing. You cannot legislate there to be more oil, more gold, more iron, more I beam, and more of the products made from those things. You can't just legislate that those things be made into thin air. Like, you can't manifest them from nothing. Yeah, exactly. And you, you can legislate that they be made, but there's a cost. You know, you can it's going to take time and energy and material resources to do that. And the whole point of this is to make more material resources. And that's really the whole argument between capitalism and communism and different forms of economies, which is how do we do this? How do we take the resources that we have, distribute them, and then in some way use those resources to get more resources. And really the way I think you change the pit or you change how much rooms on the hill that if you were to climb out of the pit and if we were to associate the trek out of the pit with anything, it's that we need to find ways to take what we have and get even more than we, than we spend out. And I don't mean in dollars, although you can represent it in dollars, but in actual substantive value, you know what I mean? And this is saying like, how do we take enough iron and materials out to build a machine that can yield even more iron, assuming enough of it exists, which again, that's a whole other issue of like natural resource limits, but that's down the road. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that if we, if the human if humans on earth could wave wand and just extract all the natural resources out, I feel like the total value of the earth would be drastically higher than it is now. There's just, there, there are plenty of things on earth for everybody 
for a while, you know, so I'm not caring about that so much. But I think, you know, that's how you can increase the capacity for people to have the life outside of the pit. And then if you can just tie us growing that to the ropes out of the pit, then I think you can build a positive feedback loop that in, that exists in such a way that the more people climb out of the pit, the better it is for everybody. It actually is. And democracy is not that vessel. It's mm-hmm. not the vehicle to do that. It, in theory, could be. But the problem is, is that it's controlled. Democracy alone cannot yield it. No. And even worse, those who are in the driver's seat of that democracy, if it were a true republic, or a true democracy where there was no corruption, the people who are in the driver's seat of that are the ones who are the least and I'm not trying to be offensive here, but they are the least capable of getting there because they haven't done it. I'm not saying that right. those who have got out can do it for everybody either. Because again, figuring it out for yourself is not the same in solving the problem for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a problem that like one person is going to solve. I'm, you know, no, it won't be. It's a, it's a, everyone's situation is different. Yeah. There are general rules that yield better results than others, but ultimately there is no magic formula to drag yourself out of poverty. And I know that might sound a little bit depressing to hear because I do think we all desperate, especially if you're in the pit, like everybody wants a way out and we all would rather no one be there, but rather no one be there and would rather it'd be harder to fall into it. Right. right? That, yeah. That's where all the, that's where all the, the proposed policies for like social safety nets and things like that come from. Nobody wants, nobody wants to think about the possibility of getting to the bottom. Right. Yeah. You know, I think this would be an interesting conversation. I think I think I would love to expand on the conversation about people trying to infinite money glitch reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to expand on the conversation about how how did finance go from investing in companies so that the company does more, like the thing we had talked about, to fractional reserve banking and things like that. And then I think there's also a good conversation to be had in there about how crypto is not going to solve this problem, or it might. Uh, because what if we could just print everything we wanted and we all just lived in Decentraland? <laughs> Jeez. So maybe <laughs> next time or maybe in the future that becomes the topic. Because I think that's a natural progression from this where it's like, what if we didn't have to grow the size of the resources? We just dropped the size of demand. Because that's the other thing that no one has acknowledged yet. No one wants to think about is what if we just embrace the pit and live in a dead, empty mall, but with rose-colored glasses? In the form of a VR headset. Mm-hmm. Philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.